We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. This is your curated selection of the week's science stories. I'm Rowan Hooper. And I'm Chelsea White. Welcome to the show. It's episode 195. We're recording this on May 31st. And in the pod with us, we have Michael DePage, Matt Sparks, and Alexandra Thompson. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Podland. Hi there. Hello. Hi. Coming up this week, we're discussing the use of stem cells harvested from umbilical cords to treat disease. And we're looking at an underappreciated risk of all the future moon landings that we're about to see from space agencies and private companies. We're also going to be hearing about thousands of new species discovered in the deep sea, just where companies want to start mining for metals. And we have a feathered life form of the week that burrows into the ground. But first, hibernation. So it's spring here in the Northern Hemisphere, but it has felt like a very long winter. Yeah. And I keep thinking, wouldn't it be nice to hibernate through the winters? <laughs> so, uh, Michael, tell us, is that going to be possible one day? Well, the, the really surprising thing is we're actually making progress towards that. Uh, obviously, there's a long way to go. But uh, and anyway, back in 2020, I reported how two teams had independently found this kind of switch in the brains of mice that introduces this state called torpor when activated. So this is when animals lower their metabolism and their body temperature to save energy. And hibernation essentially consists of extended periods of torpor. And these teams, they can induce torpor with a flick of the brain switch? So the thing is, they had to genetically (laughs) injure these mice in order to switch on this brain area. So it's not exactly something (laughs) you're going to be doing. Yeah, not exactly something you're going to be doing in people. But what happened is a researcher called Hong Chen at Washington University saw these studies, and her team's been working on this method of ultrasound called focus ultrasound that can actually activate specific brain areas. Oh, cool. So then she's used that ultrasound to try turning on this switch? Exactly. So she found that one burst of this focused ultrasound on the the sort of site of that switch caused the body temperature of mice to fall by around three degrees Celsius. That's five degrees Fahrenheit. And so after a couple of hours, the mice went back to normal with with no harm done. And then the team tried using repeated bursts and they they kept them in torpor for up to 24 hours. This is one of those bits of science that is simultaneously amazing and kind of terrifying. Is that so the 24 hours is that is that the sort of the longest they can do it for? 
No, that's the good news. That's just the longest the team have tried so far. So Chen told me she thinks they can keep it going for, for longer. Wow. Uh, and so this study is obviously significant because focused ultrasound is something we could actually consider using in people, unlike genetic engineering. But there, there's more to this as well. So mice naturally enter torpor when they run out of food. So it's not surprising that they have this brain switch. Mm. But Chen also found that she could induce torpor in rats, and they don't naturally go into torpor. So that suggests it's possible even animals like us that don't normally hibernate might still have this brain switch. Wow. That's really wild. Mm -hmm. Is it is it risky? Like, why would we ever attempt something like this in people? Well, so the, the idea behind this is that it could help people who've been severely injured or had a stroke. Basically, anything that stops oxygen getting to the brain. Mm -hmm. If you can reduce the brain's need for oxygen, you can reduce the damage. And there's already an ongoing trial in the US where the bodies of people who've suffered very serious injuries are cooled right down to 15 degrees Celsius. That's 60 Fahrenheit. But this is a really drastic procedure where they replace the blood with chilled saline. And so if we could achieve a, a sort of a slower, more gradual fall in body temperature just by using ultrasound, that might be useful as well in some circumstances. For instance, you might want to do it during certain operations. I was just thinking when you said replacing the blood with ice cold saline, um, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, that's like the, the mother in succession, right? As if she's just ice cold. <laughs> I just had to get a succession link in there. You know, of course. It's just been constantly thinking about it. Yeah. Um, but, but Michael, if we perfect this technique for medical purposes, I have to ask, can we, you know, hibernate and use it for deep space travel to, you know, Alpha Centauri and other places? Yeah, I, I'm going to be a party pooper here and say so I don't <laughs> see it happening. But Michael, the... that's, that's why you're an award-winning uh, <laughs> science writer, because you are a party pooper. <laughs> anyway, but, but actually, I do think it might become possible to put people in suspended animation for months or even years. But with, well. with space travel, there's an even bigger problem of our body's going to get zapped to, by radiation and, and sort of sort of killed stone dead long before mm. we get anywhere. And that's really the biggest problem with space travel. But if you think about it, here on Earth, we've already got a few people paying to be deep frozen after their death in the mm. unlikely hope of being revived at some point in the future. But if we could put people in suspended animation for long periods, I, I can see seriously ill people going, well, let me try this and maybe... After a few years, there'll be a treatment for this disease and, and this will actually help me. That's amazing stuff. Um, I'm going to retrospectively anoint this segment as the sci-fi alert, as, you know, suspended animation is, is used all the time in science fiction. And as you say, we're getting ever closer. Okay, it's time for Life Form of the Week. And for this one, Rowan, you've been to the London Wetland Centre to see some... What are they, sand martins? <laughs> yeah, uh, bank swallows, you call them in North America. Do you know bank swallows? Uh, yeah, they've got those little uh, tails with the two forks, right? Exactly. Yeah, little fork tails there in the family with uh, barn swallows and uh, cliff swallows. Small birds, brownish, uh, with a white underside, fork tails. Great indicators of spring because they arrive early in spring to their breeding grounds. In the northern parts of the United States and Canada, they arrive from where they overwinter in the south, even as far as South America. And here in northern Europe, they fly up from sub-Saharan Africa. And the lovely things about these ones is they build tunnels, like basically like hobbits. Little feathered hobbits. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and I met up with a consultant ornithologist called Bill Haynes, who was ringing dozens of these sand martin chicks. So I don't know if you can hear all those tweaks and mutterings that's from the sand martin chicks 
nearly a hundred of them, more than a hundred of them. Yeah. Um, so this is one of the largest artificial nest sites for sand martins in London. There's a hundred nests here. Uh, it's basically we're in a concrete bunker in the back of the sandbank, this artificial sandbank, um, with all these tunnels built into it, like a, like a, a hotel for sand martins. And Bill, I, I was wondering, you know, if you're a canny predator, you know, a sparrowhawk or a hobby, you could sit outside oh, and, you yes. know... Yes, it has been known that apparently one of the sparrowhawks has been regularly seen sat outside and as birds come out, uh, it snaffles one or two, usually, usually youngsters. The adults are usually too quick, but... Um, Yes, it, it is a bit of a, a takeaway diet yeah. <laughs> for the sparrowhawks. So that in here, for example, we've got see these, these little eggs which are like oh, wow. white. They're tiny, aren't they're they? They're absolutely tiny. And they're sort of, if you imagine uh, one of those mini eggs yeah. that you get, they're a little bit smaller than that. Yeah, and, yeah. and they're sort of like a, a dull white. Now this clutch probably isn't complete. The eggs are warm, so they're being incubated. Mm. And normally they'll have usually four or five eggs. I haven't, they have been known to have seven. I've had seven in here before. A lot of people have been worried about the lack of insects this year. And I wondered if, because these, the martins obviously feed on insects, have you noticed any sort of supply issues with them? Not really, no. Um, the, they seem to have been doing you know, very well this year. Mm. They, were, they arrived particularly early or, yeah, mm. and settled down quite quickly so by the time I was starting to check the nest some already had quite well-grown chicks. So that's quite reassuring in yeah. terms of the insect numbers is, around. yes. Good. So I, I think sort of generally yes insects are down yes especially some families things like moths and people are recording very very few moths this year in moth trapping and stuff um, but yeah San Martin seem to be finding plenty to eat and they're raising their chicks and we've already had you know, 12, 13 broods already fledged successfully. So it turns out that in the San Martin Hotel, there's a hierarchy of preferences for tunnels, with birds preferring the rooms at the top. Probably they assess the options and pick the one highest from the water with the lowest risk of flooding. They always tend to go for the A row first, the top, the right. top row, and fill up from there. Yeah. So most of the fledged birds that we've had have all yeah have already gone from row A and they're yeah. already on second clutches. Pen, the penthouse. The penthouse suite, suite yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, whereas the ones in D, which is the bottom row, we're still on first brood eggs. Right. Wow. So these. So these chicks are probably about ten to twelve days old. Their feathers are just coming through from the sheaths that protect them when they're growing. Yeah. And the eyes. Eyes are just about starting to open. Yeah, yeah. Tell us how they dig the burrows, because I always thought of them have, having, you know, almost useless legs, just good for perching. No, they'll, they'll have, um, they have got little claws on them and they, they will use, um, yeah, their claws to tunnel, to tunnel out through soft, soft substrates, which is like sands, which is why they're called sand martins. Yeah. In America, actually, they're called bank swallows, so that they'll... They'll burrow in using their little feet. They've got quite sharp little claws and they'll yeah. probably use the beak as well. And the tunnels can be anything from about 30 centimetres up to a metre long. Yeah. But it's some effort to dig it out is, a metre yeah. long tunnel, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yes, so it, it would be. Yeah, I mean, yeah, these, these birds are probably about, what, 10 centimetres long. Mm. So, yeah, they're, they're pretty resilient little characters. Be able to do that and fly to Africa as well. 
DNA analysis of sand martins and their nestlings has shown that about 20% of the chicks are not fathered by the male bird that's feeding them, which might explain why the males show what a birder friend of mine called exquisitely paranoid mate-guarding behaviour when the female is fertile. If I've ringed a brood of chicks, I can sometimes find them in other nests once they've fledged. Right. So we know that they're going around trying to get free food off some other poor unsuspecting parents. Yeah. Or they could just be having a rest and it's just like an added bonus. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> and I guess, um, yeah, they, when they arrive here, they've made a huge journey, haven't they? Thousands, how, many, how far have they come? I think it's about 4,000 kilometres from the Sahal area. Right which is the area south of the Sahara on the big bulge of Africa. So yeah. we're talking uh, Ghana, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, um, Senegal, Gambia, that area. Mm. That was so nice to see those sand martins. Thanks to Bill Haynes and the London Wetland Centre, uh, which is always worth a visit. Let's take a break for some messages. New Scientist Jobs and Metro.co.uk are conducting a survey to understand the experience of the global LGBTQIA community in STEM. If you are part of the LGBTQIA community and work in STEM, we would love to hear your thoughts and feedback. Please visit newscientist.com slash LGBT, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And our events program for summer and autumn 2023 is now up. We've got an incredible range of exciting new events to satisfy your scientific curiosity. Whether it's taking a deep dive into the science of space, understanding the secrets to a longer life, or joining us for a residential weekend, New Scientist has the perfect event for you. Find out more at newscientist.com slash summer events. We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. New research suggests that the goo in umbilical cords could delay the progression of type 1 diabetes. Alexandra, you're handling this story. What's going on? Yes, so this was a small study, but it shows another potential use for umbilical cords. So cord blood, which remains in the placenta and the umbilical cord after a baby is born, is rich in stem cells, which can be used to treat many different cancers, immune deficiencies and genetic conditions. I mean, some people donate their umbilical cord blood or even bank it for future use. Right. Uh, but this study was looking at the, the goo, the Wharton jelly in the umbilical mm-hmm. cord, not the blood, right? Yeah, that's correct. So the jelly is also rich in stem cells. So what happened is researchers in Sweden looked at 15 people with early stage type 1 diabetes. They were diagnosed less than a year ago, so we can presume that their immune system was in the early stages of attacking their pancreas's insulin-producing cells and not too much damage had been done. 
So 10 of these people received an infusion of stem cells taken from the Wharton jelly of someone else's umbilical cord, and the remaining five participants received a placebo infusion. And what were the results? So one year later, those who received the stem cells had no change to their requirements for artificial insulin. So people with type 1 diabetes have to administer insulin to keep their blood sugar levels in check. In the early stages of the condition, people often need increasing amounts of the hormone as their natural insulin production declines. Mm -hmm. But the stem cell recipients saw no change here for one year, but those insulin requirements did increase in the placebo group. Right. And these weren't just any any old stem cells, right? <laughs> these were mesenchymal stem cells. Can you tell us the difference? Mesenchymal? Is that not how it. you say it? <laughs> mesenchymal. Me- mesenchymal. Oh, of course. It's so yeah. I'm not saying that that's right and you're wrong. <laughs> no, we wouldn't say that. But Never. <laughs> we didn't know there was a, an Atlantic divide about how to pronounce mesenchymal. There you go. <laughs> you mean mesenchymal. Uh, anyway, can you tell us the difference between those and other stem cells? Yes, so stem cells can differentiate into other types of cells with a specialised function, so blood cells, brain cells, heart cells, bone cells. And during embryonic development, mesenchymal stem cells can differentiate into virtually all types of connective tissue, so bone, cartilage, etc. These stem cells seem to have a particular knack for dampening down a harmful immune response, as we see in type 1 diabetes. And they can, you can get them from a stranger's umbilical cord. Doesn't have to be, you know, one that you've frozen for, you know, since you were a baby. Yes. So another advantage of mesenchymal stem cells is they could be used sort of off the shelf rather than having to have these bespoke treatments for each recipient. Mm. And that's because they lack molecules on their surface that would normally trigger an immune attack when cells from one person are transplanted into someone unrelated to them. Wow, I mean, that sounds really encouraging, but it's also really early days for this kind of treatment, yeah? Yes, and the stem cell recipients need to be monitored for many years to ensure the cells don't trigger a harmful immune response. And we've also had mixed results with stem cell trials, so, you know, disappointing results for a large study looking at their potential to treat heart attacks. So, yes, it's promising, but also TBC. Now, we've got a story about 5,000 new species being discovered in the deep sea in the clarion Clipperton zone, uh, and that's the area due to be mined. Matt, remind us where this zone is, you know, why it's, there's such interest among mining companies to get down there, um, and how deep are we talking about? So the, the CCZ is a region of the Pacific Ocean that was first discovered in 1950. Uh, it probably wasn't that hard to discover because it spreads over four and a half million square kilometres. Uh, it's not, not <laughs> a small region. Hiding. <laughs> yeah. um, the reason it's getting lots of attention is that on the, on the seabed there, there's an estimated 21 billion tonnes of these nodules which form on or near the seabed. We're talking 4,000, 5,000 metres down. And they're chock full of nickel, cobalt, copper, titanium, all sorts of rare earth elements, which is exactly the sort of stuff you need to make batteries and other high-tech devices. Yeah, so the argument here is that we need these resources, all that, all those metals, in order to make the transition to a carbon-neutral economy to get off fossil fuels, and that it's better to go and dig up the seabed to get them than to destroy any more of the terrestrial ecosystems that are still standing. Yeah, that's 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 roughly the argument. Mining in the CCZ, it's it's regulated by this um, International Seabed Authority, which is a, an intergovernmental organisation with 167 states uh, as members. And Pradeep Singh at the Research Institute for Sustainability in Potsdam, he says, 
there hasn't been any commercial mining yet, but companies and countries with licenses from the ISA to mine, they're lining up to get ready. You know, they're, mm. they're ready to go as soon as the rules and regulations on how to mine are nailed down. And that could come really soon. But how concerned are biologists about this impending mining? I imagine it's not going to be great for the ecosystem. No, no, probably not. There is concern. There's been lots of small uh, small surveys in the region over the last few decades, but Muriel Raybone at the Natural History Museum in London, she pulled together the data from all of these small surveys to get a wider picture of the sort of biodiversity that exists down there for the first time. She found... There's over 5,500 different species in the CCZ, and as many as 92% of those were entirely new to science, um, which is pretty astonishing. And even better than that, only six of those new species found there, which include a sea cucumber, a nematode, and a carnivorous sponge, have been seen anywhere else. I'm quite glad the carnivorous sponge hasn't been seen anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite one. What a cool little guy. Yeah. What What is a carnivorous I mean, are all sponges carnivorous? Do they feed by filter feeding? Yeah, they do. But the carnivorous ones eat crustaceans and really quite large animals rather than just filter feeding out li- little tiny bits of plankton and stuff. Yeah, there's there's some unusual stuff down there. And uh, Muriel Raybone tells me that it's likely to be the tip of the iceberg as well, because there could be as many as 8,000 more unknown species down there. Um, she's been on surveys herself, and she tells me that every time they lift a sample up from the seabed, they see an entirely new creature in there. Incredible. <laughs> so their concern is that the species will be affected by the mining, and we won't be able to gauge how badly because we don't even know what most of them are, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. We we could lose species before we even know they exist. So Muriel Raybone, she wants to see much more surveying before mining takes place so that we know exactly what is down there before we start harming it. Mining is likely to involve scraping the bottom of the sea to gather up these nodules, so it could be pretty catastrophic for anything that lives down there. Now, we've got a story about the future of lunar exploration and the problems with moon dust. Chels, what's going on here? Yeah, so there's certainly plans to land on the moon. Uh, NASA is aiming to take astronauts there on the Artemis missions. And SpaceX and Blue Origin have both been contracted to develop landers that can take the humans to the surface of the moon. But Mm. one of the issues is no landing pads on the moon. (laughs) (laughs) No landing pad, no airstrips on the moon. I mean, right. is that not like saying, you know, there's no Starbucks on the moon? You know, what's the problem? Why don't they just land on it like Apollo did? I mean, sure, they can, but that's where the problem of moon dust comes in. So we have a story this week about an analysis of just how much moon dust the thrusters on landers like that might kick up. And it's just absolutely huge. Okay. I, I, I was just being facetious just then. I mean, I know it's really bad stuff and it did cause real problems on the Apollo missions. And, you know, it got into, it clogged up the suits so that even after th- just three moonwalks, the suits became unusable, the, uh, the space suits. Uh, and it got into the lunar module, into the command module. So yeah, it was, it's really dodgy, nasty stuff. Um, but how much are we talking about? Well, it depends on the size of the lander, but take something over 40 tons, which is about wow. eight times the mass of the Apollo landers, but it yeah. is something that NASA has considered for future landers. In that case, a touchdown would kick up millions of pieces of moon dust, and they would easily reach the escape velocity of the moon. Oh, wow, of course. So they escape, they escape the gravitational pull of the moon. Right. 
And the moon doesn't have a magnetic field or an atmosphere like Earth does, so it won't be trapped there. It would move out into lunar orbit where it might hit any orbiters passing by. Yeah, so not that's uh, yeah, that's not a good outcome, is it? No, <laughs> it's pretty bad. Uh, these are, like you said, little shards of dust. They're really like little spikes of glass, and they would be absolutely hurtling through space. So yeah. they could degrade solar panels or scientific instruments, or they could even just destroy a spacecraft. So, you know, NASA's got these plans for the uh, Lunar Gateway, the orbiting space station around the moon. You know, have they taken that into account? Could it, it could threaten that project? I mean, it could. The Gateway is planned to orbit between Earth and the moon and frequently pass near the moon. This analysis of moon dust found that the Gateway might see 10,000 impacts per square meter every time it swings by the moon. Wow. Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't want to be on the space station waiting to go down to the moon with, you know, with all that flying at you, would you? No, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, but there are solutions. So first of all, one expert said that this may not be a problem unless something happens to be flying overhead just at the moment of a landing. So mm. some coordination could go a long way to keeping down the, the threat of this dust. But also we could build some landing pads that would help absorb the thrust of any spacecraft that are touching down. And like uh, you could also put the thrusters higher up, like on a uh, Starship, uh, SpaceX's Starship. Yeah, right. Those are at the top rather than the bottom. So I have a feeling the solution is probably going to be all of these at once. That's all for this week. Uh, before we go, let's send our congratulations and our best wishes to podcast co-host Penny Sarche, who's just had a baby boy, and to our producer Oli Giyu, who's just had a baby girl. Congratulations both. Congrats. Congratulations. Thanks to our guests, Michael LePage, Alexandra Thompson, and Matt Sparks. I'm Chelsea White. And I'm Rowan Hooper. Thanks for listening to New Scientist Podcasts. Do subscribe to our show on the app you're listening to now and check out our archive. It's all free. Uh, We'll see you next week. Bye for now. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.